as we just read those uh, questions and promises and answers together and promise to pray for our covenant children in our church family, uh, it's a good chance to remind you all of the men's and women's prayer meetings that meet with some regularity. And men, the men's meeting is tomorrow morning. So it's a great chance to gather together to pray those prayers for Avery and for all of our covenant children. And so don't forget that. They meet together, I think, at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning at the church office. And ladies, the women's prayer meeting is once a month in the church office at a maybe more reasonable time than 7 a.m. But uh, you all remember those. It's a great chance to gather together and pray for our covenant family as a church. This morning we're looking at Psalm 135, and you can see it there on page 8 of your bulletin. This psalm is a psalm of praise, but it has in it, I would guess, I I would say maybe a, a dash of remembrance and a dash of wisdom. It kind of combines some of those things together, and you'll hear it as we read it. Above, above all, it's really a call to worship. It's a call to worship the one true God, and it gives us very substantial reasons why we ought to do that. Today is a beginning of sorts, kind of be, being the very front end of the school year. Most of you are, are back in school if you're school-aged kids or, or otherwise, and so as we kind of regather after a long summer, as a church family, it's important, I think, it's good and healthy for us to be reminded by this psalm of why we worship God. So listen for the reasons for that as we read Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of God and they stand forever. Father in heaven, we pray that you would gather with us as you've called us into your presence and meet us with your word. Father, even as we've read it here, we pray that you would 
uh, enable our hearts and our minds to embrace it, to comprehend it, to believe it, and to grow in faith, even as you show us your faithfulness to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In these couple of decades of increasing strife and power struggle in the Middle East, which we all hear about in the news daily, it seems, some of the most courageous words, four words, that I've heard in the midst of all of those news clips about it came from the mouth of a 25-year-old volunteer aid worker. You may have heard her story, Kayla Mueller. She was taken captive by ISIS uh, in Syria three years ago this month, in August of 2013, taken captive while there as a volunteer aid worker. And that day, beginning her captivity, began an ordeal that would last for her 18 months And it was an ordeal of torture and verbal abuse, of isolation and deprivation, of even stress positions that they required of her for hours at a time, of forced labor and tragically, but of course, also of sexual assault that she endured. And her fellow captives who survived similar circumstances, who at different times were with her in different places of captivity as they moved her about. Her fellow captives remembered in interviews following those who had escaped or been released, they remembered her for the strength of her character. They remembered her for the selflessness of her actions. She, at one point, even allowed for and helped a group of teenage girls to escape from captivity by not going with them, she being the lone American among them, the prized possession, as it were, she stayed in captivity and allowed these group of teenage girls to to leave and escape uh, by her own selfless actions of remaining. They remembered even the resolve of her faith in Christ as they reflected on this young woman and their experience with her in captivity. After six months of her captivity, she was at one point paraded into a room in front of a group of new prisoners who had been brought in, and she being shown to them as an example of what they ought to be, supposedly. They were mocked by this captive, a ruthless executioner, who led her into the room in front of this group of men, and they were told by this captor that this young woman was much stronger than they were. In fact, She even had converted to Islam, to which she said these four words, No, I did not. And those who heard her say those words marveled later on at the force of the strength of her words that she could possibly even say those words to a man who held her life in his hands and wouldn't hesitate to take it. Eventually, she did die in her captivity. But what could possibly sustain that kind of defiance? What could possibly keep the heart of, 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 a, of a person directed with their soul and their mind in tune to worship the one true God as opposed to a false God in such hard conditions? What could possibly do that? The psalmist here tells you. 
He tells you that what can possibly do that is the certain knowledge of the character of the one true God. He is good, he's great, and he's just. This Psalm 135 is, is actually, I think, paired, is placed in the Psalter as a pair with the one that follows it, Psalm 136. That's not printed for you in the bulletin, of course. It's rather long, but if you have a Bible in front of you, you can see it there. Psalm 136 I preached on in this pulpit, I think about five years ago, you may recall. Psalm 136 you would recall because of its refrain. It covers some of the same historical events and even with the same wording as Psalm 135, but it's a very different sort of psalm. The psalm you have in front of you is a call to worship. Psalm 136 is the liturgy of that thanksgiving worship. And it runs itself through a constant refrain over two dozen times it reminds us. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Twenty-seven times, I think, through the course of that psalm, the congregation would read that liturgy back to the liturgist, and then they would remember the theme of the psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. And together, these two psalms, I think, tell us that not only do we give thanks to God, but we worship Him because His unfailing love for His people, for us, comes through His unfailing character. We worship Him because He is good. Verse 3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. At first hearing, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, that is just as simple as it could possibly be. It, you almost want to assume that it's a platitude, that it's just sort of a, an empty statement that doesn't really mean anything. It's just what we say to be polite. Of course, we're going to say that God is good. If you're a Christian anyway, you, you might be inclined to say that, I would hope. But all that is, quote, good in Scripture is the standard by which anything is recognized as evil, as its opposite. And it's a distinction that the world in which we live is quickly and steadfastly working to erase. God is good by His very nature. Verse 3 elaborates a bit on what it has said. It, It says, praise the Lord, the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. Now, your Bible, if you have it in front of you, your Bible might have a a little tiny microscopic number almost next to that phrase that leads you to a text note at the bottom of the page, and it gives you an alternate translation for that phrase, for it is pleasant, and the alternate translation is, he is beautiful. It's It's another reasonable translation of the Hebrew there, and surely is a part of what the psalmist was after here, sing to his name, for he, for God, is beautiful. That's his nature. God is the very definition of anything and everything that is good or beautiful. And in a world that has more and more begun to call good evil and to call evil good, Christians have a very steep hill to climb, don't we? It seems. It's at least confusing for us at times, and sometimes you might even despair over it. But the fact is that the nature of the one true God never changes. It's always good. And therefore, it's always the standard by which anything is determined to be good. 
Ravi Zacharias, many of you would know of. He's one of the more famous, well-known Christian apologists in the world. An amazingly effective man in defending the Christian faith and in reasoning with philosophers over different points of their contention. One time, among thousands of times, I'm sure, Ravi Zacharias was at a college campus and he was speaking, a panel kind of discussion in front of a large crowd on this campus. And one of the topics that came up was to explain the standard of ethics that we live with as human beings in the world. And he had done his part of that in the course of this discussion. And then during the question and answer, a, a questioner stood up at the microphone and asked him and, and, and pointed his question at Mr. Zacharias. And the questioner said, what are you Christians so afraid of? Why are you so afraid that you can't be comfortable with a subjective moral ethic in the world? In other words, why can't you be comfortable with the supposed fact that moral ethics, that our decisions about what's good or evil, are simply dependent upon our own choices and what we do subjectively, rather than being objective, coming to us from outside of our society? Why can't you Christians just be comfortable with that? What are you so afraid of, he said. And Ravi Zacharias, in his typical and and custom, I think, way, was ready to answer the question, and he smiled warmly at this young man who asked the question, and Ravi returned a question back to him. He said, he said, young man, do you lock your door at night? And laughter began to scatter among the, the people in the crowd because they recognized immediately where he was going with that. And the young man said, well, yeah, I do lock my door at night. And I think the young man began to realize that he was already in a corner. And Ravi said to him then, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of that you lock your door at night? And the young man said, well, I don't trust people I don't know. And Ravi said, exactly. Exactly. And why don't you trust people that you don't know? Well, because they might come to me with a moral standard of their own choosing that conflicts with my moral standard and it begins to impose upon my lifestyle as I choose and deem to be comfortable. Of course it does. You know, while there's much good in us being created in God's image, there's something desperately wrong with our nature. So much so that God's goodness is shown to us, not just in His nature, but in His actions. The psalmist tells us that we worship God because, verse 4, He has chosen Jacob for Himself. Now, give me a little latitude here. I don't think you'll need to give me much, but forgive me for being Presbyterian just for a moment. The psalmist evidently loves the doctrine of election. Enough to use the word chosen. He has chosen Jacob for himself. And I would say that the doctrine of election... And this shouldn't be just a Presbyterian thing. This should just be a Christian thing for those who read the Bible. That the doctrine of election is one of the most powerful reasons why we worship the one true God because it's powerful proof of His goodness to us. Well, how can it be, you might ask? If you're skeptically minded about this, how can that be? Because He can't be good if He doesn't choose everybody. You know, our... Arminian friends, that's the the term, if you don't know it, our Arminian Christian friends, I think, tend to get 
hung up on this supposed ethical dilemma and want to insist that God must just be waiting for you to choose him because surely he won't impose himself on you to make you choose him. But that's really no better than Ravi Zacharias's questioner, is it? Because it betrays a certain doctrine of man. It betrays the fact that we assume that man is good enough to do that. But he's not. God is the one who is good. And he proves his goodness to us by his gracious action of choosing his people for himself. That's the theme of that liturgy that follows this psalm. In Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It's speaking of God's covenant choosing love of those he desires to adopt as his sons and his daughters. And he does it for no reason in themselves, but rather because of the goodness of his nature and his actions. John alluded to it earlier this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm sure this psalm was, psalmist was thinking of this when he wrote the psalm. Moses is about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. They're on the verge of the Jordan River. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says to them these words. He says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, for He has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest, but rather it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. God is simply being consistent with what He's promised the fathers generations before, and out of His love He has chosen His people. By His nature and His actions, God shows that He's good, and so we worship Him. But He's not just good, He's actually great. Verse 5, the psalmist goes on, Praise the Lord, for I know that the Lord is great, that He is above all gods. Now, I do not know what was in Kayla Mueller's mind when she uttered those four courageous words to her would-be killer. But it had to have been that she knew that the one true God is the only great God. The psalmist writes with some personal conviction in verse 5 here, he says, For I know, I know that God is great. And it's reflective of, again, an Old Testament scene back in the in the old days, Moses had just led the Israelites out of Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. And his father-in-law, whose name was Jethro, came to meet Moses and these people, Moses' people whom he had drawn out of Egypt. Jethro, who was not an Israelite at all, a Midianite rather, had to marvel at the fact that all of these people had come out of Egypt so miraculously, and Jethro came after the Exodus to meet them. And Moses recounts it this way. He said, And Jethro rejoiced for all that the Lord had done for Israel. Jethro, his father-in-law, put, put aside whatever doubts he had about this God to whom Moses was listening. And Jethro himself said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord 
is greater than all other gods. This coming from Jethro, who, again, was not an Israelite. And Jethro then brought a sacrifice and worshiped God because he's great. Because God's great over the creation. Jethro and Moses surely had known and seen that as God led the people out of Egypt. God is great over the creation. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He makes the lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind. Now, any thoughtful person, whether a Christian or not, should marvel at those sorts of things. You know, when we walk out through creation and we see the lightning in a thunderstorm, or we just see the clouds in the sky and the rain that comes from them, we should marvel at such things. But for a Christian... The creative greatness of God should lead us to worship. When I was an engineer, before going to seminary, just after college, my first job in Houston, Texas, I worked there for a natural gas pipeline company. And and I worked in in what we called the lab, a laboratory facility, kind of out on the outskirts of Houston. And our manager, who oversaw the entire workings of the lab, retired and left, and they brought in a new person, a man named Joe, to come and be our manager. And we quickly learned that this man was only going to be temporary because he was way too qualified to come and manage this lab of engineers. This man had not just an MBA and a PhD in physics, but he had come to us from Washington, D.C., where he had spent a couple of years as a White House fellow in the presidential administration of the time. This man was brilliant. This is one of those people who change the world by the things that they do and that they think. And I don't know how the pipeline company that I worked for managed to hire this man to come and work for us, but they did. And on one day, I can remember being in Joe's office and talking to him about a certain situation. And he was a thinker. His mind was always up in the clouds. And he paused as though he wasn't really even hearing what I was saying. And he said to me, Colin, did you know, and I already knew that I wasn't, but did you know that according to chaos theory, you can write a mathematical equation to describe the changing shape of the clouds as they float in the sky? No, I didn't know that, Joe. I had no idea. I never thought of that kind of thing. What makes you think of that kind of thing? Where does this come from? I had no idea. And for the rest of that day, and for the two decades ever since, Every time I see a cloud in the sky, I think of that question to me. And I think, the God of heaven has written an equation to define the shape of that cloud even as it changes floating through the sky. And my heart worships. That's what should happen. God's work in creation should make us to worship him. And the truth is that children are more inclined to this than grown-ups are. So, grown-ups, this is a great lesson. You know, as we grow older, we take these sorts of things for granted. We just walk by and we forget them. We don't, we don't notice the marvels of God's creative power. I noticed a neighborhood boy near our house just yesterday who was out in the street with a homemade kite. He had fashioned this kite out of a piece of plastic and some some sticks and tied it all together to a piece of string, and he was running down the street as hard as he could to make this kite 
rise up into the air because there was no wind yesterday at all. And he managed to get that thing up 10 or 15 feet into the air before he wore out and got too tired at the end of the street. And I expect that boy thought he was just flying a kite. But he was actually creating an opportunity to worship God who made the creation to function just so that a homemade kite could rise up on the pressure of the air as that boy ran with his own legs and energy down the street and lifted up into the sky. Grown-ups, you should pay attention to the children around you. And notice the things that they do. They create so many opportunities for you in your heart to worship your God. He is great over the creation. But he's even great over history as well. The psalmist rolls on into that in verse 8 where he begins a short list of historical events there. If you see that paragraph there, and it's the same events that happened in Psalm 136. If you were to read that psalm, you'd see even the same wording of some of these same events. And they are, I would say, a sampling of the accounts for the bigger picture of God's redemptive deliverance of his people. They're just a sampling of that bigger picture. Notice how these events stretch out from the Exodus to the promised land. Notice them there. He it was, God, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt who sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. It was God who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion of the Amorites and Og of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And it was God who gave their land as a heritage to his people. Now these were some of the historical obstacles that stood in the way of God's people as they were traveling from slavery to freedom. These are some of the historical examples before God led his people to arrive at their promised destination. And these are historical realities, these events, they're they're metaphorical, as it were, for your own Christian life. Now, the Psalms are poetry. And so we have to realize and recognize them as poetic. And that's what's happening here. This is a metaphor that you see before you. They are metaphorical for your Christian life. Verses 8 to 12 describe your Christian life. From your own exodus of being born again and taken out of the slavery to your own sin, all the way to the promised land of heaven, eventually in the future for you. And all those seemingly impossible obstacles that you face along the way, both enemies without and enemies within, God is great over those too. And when you reflect on his faithful love to you in the history of your own life, it should lead you to worship. Now, for the, the skeptically minded among us, I and mean, I don't presume that everyone here in the room is a Christian, for those who are, are skeptically minded about these sorts of things, I recognize that this about God being great over history and his actions in history as described in these verses, these matters might raise for you some ethical objections. Aha, there it is. God it was who struck down the firstborn. God it was who killed the kings and defeated Canaan. I knew it. This God, he does evil 
And so you may ask, as a skeptic, how can the one true God do such unethical things? That's a reasonable question at this point. But you have to also realize that the question begs some self-definitions that are implied in it. What do you mean by unethical? Who's determining what's ethical or not, after all? Back to Ravi Zacharias' interaction with that questioner. Do you remember the question that came to him? Why are you Christians so afraid of subjective moral standards? That is, people determining for themselves what's right and what's wrong. Well, that young man's suggestion unraveled very quickly because of what he knew was out there somewhere. Clearly, the standards of right and wrong come from outside of us. And that being the case, do you, as you object to these verses, do you really want to live in a world where the one who sets those standards does not enforce them? Because that's exactly what these verses are describing, God enforcing the standards that he has created to define his world. We worship God because he's great over creation and over history. But we worship him also because... He's just. Verse 14, Praise the Lord, for He will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. He will vindicate. What does that mean? To vindicate something or someone just simply means to set the record straight. It means to clear someone's name. And that's what justice does. And you see His justice in the consequences of false worship that the psalmist goes on to describe in verse 15 following here, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Now, every human being worships. We all do. You you can't help it. You don't have to be a Christian to worship. You just have to be a human being. Every human being worships. We are finite creatures with infinite souls in a sense. And so we long for something that's bigger than we are, something that will validate us. And that's what the Athenians were doing when Paul stepped into their city. You heard that reading earlier on. When Paul stepped into their city and called out their many gods that they were worshiping, the the Athenians were seeking something to validate them. They were worshiping and they were doing so openly because they were human beings. It's what they were doing. And it's what Americans are doing when we ignore our family for the sake of our job because that's become bigger than everything else and that's what validates us in our existence. And so we begin to worship it, even if we don't use that word. And it's even what teenagers are doing in the first week of school when they ignore one classmate in order to gain entrance with another. Who hasn't done that? And when we do that, we are worshiping something because we all worship. And while God gives you the privilege of choosing what you will worship, He does not give you freedom from the consequences of your choice. Because the psalmist says, those who make these idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Slowly but surely, we all begin to look like what we love. And there's the vindication. In other words, are you beginning to look like a son 
or a daughter of the holy, righteous, merciful, and just one true God? Or are you more and more looking like something of your own design, something made with your own hands and fashioned after your own image? This is why a Christian must always be self-aware and always self-evaluating, always taking a look to see what are the things, what are the people, what are the labels and the achievements to which you have hitched your wagon, so to speak? What are you starting to look like? And if you think about that honestly and deeply enough, you can quickly see that you need something else from His justice. You don't need just consequences, but you need compassion. And that's what He offers. The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on his servants. Now, again, poetry here. The Hebrew language frequently pulls this little trick that we might call parallelism. It, it, it repeats a thought with the same thought in other words in order to emphasize a different aspect of it. And that is, I think, what you have here. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The second phrase elaborates on the first one. The second phrase explains the first one. To vindicate something is to clear a name of all charges that are laid against it. But the charges that are laid against us were true. It can't be vindicated of something that's true. It can't be proved false. And so for God to be both just and also our Redeemer... He had to show compassion, and, and that's what the Apostle Paul explains so well in Romans. There, you, maybe you know these words. Paul said, we are justified by grace through the life and death of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward to be received by faith. And so, because of this, God is both just and justifier of all who believe. He saw our need for His compassion before we ever knew of our failure before His justice. And He chose us to give it to us. Therefore, what do we do? We worship Him. The ultimate priority of the church, really, you know, why, why do we gather together? Why do we even have a church? The ultimate priority of the church is the worship of the one true God. And if the church does not direct the attention of your worship to what is true, then the church has failed in its very purpose. But the psalmist won't let us fail, will he? The psalmist turns our attention to what is true. God's unfailing love comes to us again and again and again and again, as the refrain reminds us. It comes to us, his sons and daughters, through His unfailing character. He is good, He is great, and He is just. So we together worship Him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that You would grant to us faith to believe this good news. Enable us in our hearts, our minds, and our souls to truly worship You to turn our attention to trusting you and for all the truth that you have granted to us. And Father, we pray that as we do that, that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified, and that we would be 
built up by grace through faith in Jesus and His righteousness. And for these things we give you praise and thanks. Amen.